we've just come off of uh, Christmas week. Um, on Thursday, of course, was Christmas when for, uh, for quite a number of years the church has celebrated the birth of Christ. And, of course, the, the reason there, that is a time of celebration is that we celebrate the incarnation when God became man, when the Son of God came in human flesh and became one of us so he could be our Savior. And as I was looking at, at um, a passage to speak on this morning, I thought that would be probably the most fitting thing we could talk about, the incarnation and why it happened. And Hebrews chapter 2 is one of the best places to go to talk about that. But in order to understand the incarnation's purpose, the reason Jesus came as a man, we need to understand first a little bit about man's purpose, why God made man in the first place. And that's where Hebrews starts also. Uh, we're just going to read, not focus very much in the sermon, but read verses 5 through 8 to start out with in Hebrews chapter 2. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, and then um, it uh, ends the quotation from Psalm 8 and says, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. See, these verses in Hebrews 2 go back to Psalm 8, and they, they quote the psalmist, David, talking about his amazement that God would pay man any attention, would pay, would pay mankind any attention. And yet, the psalmist says, God made man to be the ruler over the works of his hands. God made man in his image in order to be king under God over the world over God's creation. But of course, as, as I'm sure most of you are very much aware, uh, man and our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell from that lofty position. And man disobeyed God. Man wanted to be king of the world without God over him as, as the supreme king. Man wanted to be autonomous, wanted to do his own thing, his own way. And um, the serpent, the devil, uh, tempted man to do that and thus uh, caused man to fall away from God. And then, as the, as, uh, the writer of the Hebrews points out, uh, although this is what man was made to be, God crowned him with glory and honor and appointed him over the works of his hands. Um, and although God has, in a sense, by how he created man, he's put all things in subjection under man's feet, the writer to the Hebrews says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. This isn't the full picture of the world that we see today. Man reigning in glory over creation and under God in a, in a loving, holy relationship with God. We see things radically wrong in the world. And we see sin and death that have come into the world because, because man rebelled against God. And so that's why we have what we call the, the problem of evil and, and, and all suffering and all tragedy in the world. It's because 
man rebelled against his king and his maker. And we get sick, and we struggle, and we work with, in the sweat of our brows, and we die. And we're under God's judgment in our natural state. So man's not currently in his proper role. And the message of our text today, which we'll read in a moment, is that God will restore man's proper role. But he's already done something to accomplish this. The way God has decided to restore our proper role is that he has sent Jesus as a man to restore man's proper role. God sent Jesus as a man, as one of us, to restore us to to what he created us to be. So let's read the rest of Hebrews chapter 2 and find out some details of, of what God did. Verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So once again, let me repeat the message of the text. God sent Jesus as a man to restore man's proper role. Let's look more closely at this idea. First of all, Jesus, God's Son, is a man like us. That's the first big thing we need to get out of this this. Uh, passage of Scripture. Jesus, God's Son, He is the eternal God, is a man like us. Uh, First of all, notice in verses 7 and 9, the emphasis on being lower than the angels. Like us, Jesus became lower than the angels. Uh, Verse 7 quoted Psalm 8 in saying that uh, God made man for a little while lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. And then in verse 9 it says, Although we do not yet see all things subjected to man, we do see Jesus, him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. And uh, if you note, if you you look back in the New American Standard Bible here, in the Old Testament uh, version of Psalm 8, um, you'll see that uh, the Nazarene translates it, he's been made a little lower than God. Um, But I think... um, because of the way that writer to the Hebrews quotes this, it is correct to translate it angels. The, the Old Testament word was Elohim, which referenced 
in this case, heavenly beings, angels. But the point is, Jesus, who was maker of the angels, who was God over all, who was king over all, including the angelic powers and authorities, became lower than that for our sakes. He became just like us. Yes, he was still God, but he did not, um, in, a, in a sense, he veiled his, his divine glory, and he did not, as a little baby in Bethlehem, exercise that authority over the angels um, as he had from heaven. He became like us. He became one of us. He became a helpless baby and then a man, eventually. And like us, Jesus became flesh and blood. Look in verse 14, first part of verse 14. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partake of the same. Now, we, I think we really struggle with this concept. Sometimes we may not realize how much we struggle with it. Uh, often, we might hear others or ourselves talking about Jesus' life and things Jesus did on this earth as if, well, that was easy enough for Jesus. He was God. Sure, Jesus lived a holy life. A piece of cake. He's God. Well, yes, he's God. He's also man. And he was flesh and blood. He was made of the same stuff we are. He felt the same stuff we do. He had the same natural desires we have. He was flesh and blood. But people through the ages have struggled with this concept. How can God also be man at the same time? And so you have even heresies like something called docetism, where people in the early church would say, well, he was, he was really God. They were, they were trying to protect his deity, and so they went into heresy by saying he was really God, he wasn't really man. He just appeared, in the Greek, dakeo, he just appeared to be a man. He just kind of, uh, <clears throat> oh, may, maybe he, he kind of projected this image of a man or something. But he wasn't really man. He was really God, not man. But that's heresy. Jesus became flesh and blood. And the reason that's so important is that, as the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say, Jesus, like us, suffered. Not only did he become lower than the angels, and not only did he become real flesh and blood, but he suffered in that flesh and blood. In verses 9 and 10, um, once it says that he was made for a little while lower than the angels, uh, it says, He, because of the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. But before we get to to the rest of what that says, notice it says that he has now been crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered. Because of the suffering of death. And then down in verse 10 it says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, that is God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, in, in, uh, in bringing many people to salvation and glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting for God the Father to bring to perfection Jesus, the author of our salvation, through sufferings. Jesus suffered in a lot of different ways. All his life, in a sense, could be looked at as suffering, human suffering, in which he sympathized with us. It culminated in the suffering on the cross, which we'll get to in a moment. But he, even, he suffered all the things that we suffer, not just physically, but Emotionally, and 
Socially, he was an outcast, even among the people of his hometown. They, he uh, faithfully proclaimed who he was in the synagogue, and they tried to throw him off the cliff outside town. His own brothers did not believe in him. They, they mocked him a little bit. Um, as Jesus said, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was tired, he was hungry, he was persecuted by the authorities, by, by uh, the religious conservatives, and by the religious liberals, and by his, the people he knew so well, his friends he grew up with. He knew what suffering was. But then, to culminate it all, and in, in the final act that secured our salvation, he died. Once again, verse 9 says, It was because of the suffering of death that he's now been crowned with glory and honor. And it was by the grace of God that he tasted death for everyone. And in verse 14, once again, it says that since the children share in flesh and blood, these many children, these many sons whom God would bring to glory, since the children who would be children of God as a result of this share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. He partook of flesh and blood. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. We cannot say that Jesus doesn't know what we go through. In fact, none of us have gone through all the human suffering he went through, at least not yet. I don't think any of you are dead yet. None of us have experienced death yet, but he did. Philippians 2 uh, famous passage, I'm sure, in verse 5 emphasizes the humiliation of Christ and how he stooped to do this. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or hung on to, as something he he must insist on visibly displaying, but emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only did Jesus suffer, but he suffered to the point of death. And it was the, the cross kind of death, a humiliating criminal's death. And like us, also notice in verse 18, Jesus was tempted in the midst of suffering. It's not that he went through all these things, went through the motions, and said, no big deal, I'm God. This doesn't affect me. Jesus was affected to the very depths of his soul by this suffering. And he was tempted. Verse 18 says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now remember, temptation does not imply yielding to the temptation. Temptation does, does not mean that necessarily that there is sin in, our, in your heart answering back to the temptation. It doesn't imply yielding to the temptation and it doesn't imply sinful desires. Because remember, all our sinful desires are actually God-given desires to start with that we've twisted and applied in selfish ways independent of God. Um, as, in, as C.S. Lewis um, mentioned, the devil never invented any pleasures. Um, God 
made all those and then the devil has twisted them for his own purposes. And we, we all have the same natural desires that Jesus had. The same basic desires and needs as humans. And so we, we feel temptation in a twisted way in which our sinful hearts agree with the temptation and yield to it. Jesus felt the full weight of temptation because he had all those natural desires and needs and yet he never, he never even considered yielding to the temptation. So he had to bear up under the full weight of the tempting circumstances in which he was placed. Jesus was tempted to yield to natural desires in ways that would go against God. We yield to that sort of temptation, and so we don't feel its full possible force. But he did. Remember how when, he was, when Jesus was fulfilling the Father's will and he was in the wilderness for 40 days fasting, the devil tempted him in various ways through natural desires like the desire to eat, <laughs> and thus gain strength from that. Uh, the, the desire for glory and fame. Um, uh, all these things, the devil used the, the desires that were human and that were in Jesus, but Jesus bore up under the temptation and conquered. All right. So the big point again is, Jesus, God's Son, became a man like us. He is a man like us. And it's only because he's a man like us that he, he can be our Savior. So that's the second thing we need to see from this text, and that is Jesus, God's Son, is man's Savior. His condescension was for our exaltation. Remember verse 8 mentioned the sorry state in which we are now. That we are now in a humbled condition under the curse, under sin and death. But Jesus then condescended. He came down to where we were and became one of us in those conditions. He did not become as Adam was in his unfallen glory or as Adam could have been if he would have resisted temptation. He came and became a sinless human, but a human nonetheless in a cursed world. He condescended. And that was so he could exalt us. As we see in verse 10, his suffering was for our glory. We already saw, saw this, but look again at it. Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for God the Father to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. His suffering was so that many sons would be brought to glory. Many people from our human race, our fallen race, would be brought back to God and we'd be brought into their inheritance as sons of God. But only his suffering could accomplish that. And his mortality was for our immortality, according to verses 14 through 15. Let's look a little more closely than we have to this point at verses 14 through 15. We'll read it again. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In order for a penalty, a penalty to be paid, it must have an equivalent penalty. There must be an equivalent penalty. If someone was going to be the substitute 
for us in our sinful condition. Neither substitute and suffer God's anger and God's wrath against sin in our place. He had to endure the same quality of suffering. Jesus had to be a real man because he really had to die in our place. If you owe the IRS money, only money will pay that debt. Now, you may be able to negotiate and so on, but, but the main illustration still stands. If you owe someone money, only money will pay that debt, especially if it's the government. If your friend wants to pay the debt for you, if you can't satisfy um, the one to whom the debt is owed by, by doing something else nice for them, if I, if I am in deep debt to the IRS, my mom can't intercede for me by saying, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bake them an apple pie and send it to the IRS in my son's behalf. And my apple pies are that good that they'll say, oh, wow, this is so good. Who cares about this debt? You know, that's a silly illustration. But it's not pie that's in question here. It's money. The point is, God couldn't look down at us in our sin and say, wow, that's a huge debt they've racked up. But I like them. So maybe, hmm, maybe if these people can offer enough sacrifices in the temple, or maybe if these people can, be, can make their good outweigh their bad, maybe if these people can... can show their devotion to me by regular church attendance. Maybe if these people can be generally upstanding moral citizens, whatever, maybe something else these people can do can, can cancel out that debt. No, we were under sentence of death. And God, as the just judge, uh, punishes sin. He will always judge sin with death. It is a capital offense. So Jesus had to take the capital offense for us. Thus, he had to be one of us. It had to be our death, as it were. He did not help angels, as it says in verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham, to people who follow in Abraham's trail of faith. Have you ever thought about the fact that people, people question God's goodness and God's worthiness to be trusted and God's mercy because they say, how could a loving God send sinners to hell? And usually they're talking about mankind, right? They're talking about humans. But do you ever hear anyone saying, how can God be a good God if he sends the devil to hell? No, I don't hear people saying that much. Notice, God didn't owe sinners anything. He didn't owe sinful angels anything. And he didn't owe us anything either. In fact, we deserved what we deserved. If we're talking about what we deserved, we deserved nothing but his hot wrath against sin. But God is a gracious God and a merciful God, and therefore he has chosen to save people who will believe in his Son, whom he will bring to faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's not a matter of what we deserve. We don't deserve an out. Uh, We don't deserve a a second option besides judgment from God. But God has given us salvation in Christ 
And did you notice, in verse 14, the writer of, of this letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus partook of flesh and blood in order that through death He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, how does the devil figure into all this? How does the devil have the power of death? Didn't Jesus say, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, but fear Him, God, who can cast both body and soul into hell? Yes. Isn't God the the giver of life and the taker of life? God says, I wound and I heal, I, I heal, I kill, and I make alive? Yes. So how does the devil have the power of death? Or how did he have the power of death apart from the cross? Well, remember what the devil did in the beginning. Humanity was God's crowning creation in the garden. And the devil came and lured humanity into sin and death through temptation. And now the Bible says he maintains his death grip on our human race by keeping them in sin. For instance, Ephesians 2, verse 1. Paul talks to the Christians at Ephesus saying, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul here is talking about the radical depravity of everyone who is in their natural state, who is not a believer in Christ yet. But he doesn't just say that we were dead in our trespasses and sins on our own, but he says we were walking in that way of life according to the course of this world, which is also according to the prince of the power of the air, according to to Satan's influences, under his sway. He's the spirit that is now working in those who disobey God, it says, in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And 1 John 5 says that we know that we are of God, we who are in Christ, and that the whole world, those outside of Christ, lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. But notice John says, those who are in Christ are out from under the devil's sway, and they have eternal life. The opposite of that is that the whole world lies in the power, under the control, the dominating influence of the evil one, and implied is under his hosts, his angelic hosts. So the devil had the power of death over humanity because he kept humanity under sin as rebels against God and thus under God's judgment of death. But now, now that Jesus has become one of us and has died in our place, if we are in Christ, if we have by faith had that cross work applied to our account with God, then the devil's power of death over us is gone. And we have no reason to fear death anymore. He says, um, Jesus did this to render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil. And in order that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Fear of death is slavery, whether we want to admit it or not. It's bondage. 
But now that we don't have to fear death, if we are believers in Christ, we are free, free to serve God, even if it means our death, because death is no longer something to be feared. Now lastly, look at verses 17 through 18. We're looking at the fact that Jesus, as a man, is now our Savior. He goes on with this thought beyond the idea that he died to set us free. He goes on to say that Jesus' temptation was for our aid. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. First of all, we can point out the propitiation Christ accomplished. It's tying this to that idea of Christ's death. Um, because Christ died, when Christ died, really, he made propitiation for the sins of the people as a merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful not only because he is God, but also because now he is a man who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he's, he is a faithful, trustworthy high priest. He has made the once-for-all sacrifice, as Hebrews talks about, the once-for-all sacrifice that fully satisfies God's wrath against sin, as we have already said. Propitiation is the sacrificial, the sacrificial satisfaction of God's wrath. But then it goes on to say that that now that Christ was tempted in what he has suffered, he is able to come to our aid, we who are tempted. So he now can give sympathetic help and mediation to us. He is now the go-between between the righteous God and us sinners. And he can give sympathetic help to us sinners. He was not a sinner, but he was tempted in all ways like we are. So how do we apply this? Well, I think it should be pretty obvious, although we don't often, or often we fail to apply it. We cannot honestly say, if we believe the Scriptures, we cannot honestly say, Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through. Because He does. And He understands the weight of your temptation, no matter what it is, better than you do, because He felt its full weight. When you are tempted to try to meet your needs or your perceived needs and your desires your own way instead of God's way, remember that Jesus had the same temptation. And he suffered because he did what was right in God's eyes. And he stayed fully dependent on his Father and fully obedient to his Father. He suffered all the way to, to the torturous death of the cross because he resisted temptation. If he had if he had given in to Satan's temptation to fall down and worship him and thus receive all the kingdoms of the world, that would have been a shortcut around the cross. A shortcut to gaining the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus said no. And then in the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was crying out to his father, if there's, if there's any other way, if it's possible, let this cup pass away from me, Jesus still said, yet not what I want, but what you want, Father. Not my will, but yours be done. And when we are tempted to say, God, I know what you say, I know your promises, 
but I can't do this your way. I have to do this my way. When we're tempted to do that, we need to remember Jesus. And we need to come, as it says later in Hebrews, to the mercy seat to find grace to help in time of need and not just try to do this on our own. He is our Savior. Jesus did not just save us from the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death and hell. Jesus is also saving us right now, progressively, those of us who believe in him. He is saving us from the power, the hold of sin that still remains in our lives. He is saving us from sin to be like himself and to share in his glory one day. So God sent Jesus as a man to restore man's proper role. As we saw, Jesus, God's Son, is a man like us, and he is man's Savior. So if you have repentantly placed your faith in Jesus Christ for that salvation, that is, if you have turned from your own way, from trusting your own way of living and doing life to Christ, saying, I trust in you and you alone to make me right with God. If we we have come to that point in our lives, we have much to anticipate. Because remember the, the larger point. Mankind has a glorious calling. We are made in God's image to rule over God's creation, ultimately. You will rule the world with him when he establishes his eternal kingdom. The Apostle Paul says that you will judge both the world and angels. He says that in 1 Corinthians. You will be exalted above all the rest of creation, even above the angels. You will be one of God's many sons whom he brings to glory. You need have no fear of death. Christ has paid sin's penalty in your place and he's conquered the devil. And the devil is the one who would enslave you to sin and eternal death. But because Christ died and rose again, you will rise to undying glory. And in the nearer future, you have this merciful and faithful high priest. And he's conquered all your temptations before they ever confront you. But remember this is... All of this is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without Him, you are nothing. So, we have to live by faith in Him. Day in and day out, not just at the point of our initial salvation, but day in and day out, we need to live by faith in the Son of God and by dependence on Him through uh, taking in and applying what He's given us in His Word and through prayerful dependence on Him and supplication to Him. We have to go to Him for strength against temptation. We need to find all our glory in Him because without Him we would be on our way to damnation. Christ is the head of redeemed humanity and He is the only reason there is a redeemed humanity. On the other hand, I know it's a small group here today um, and I'm assuming mostly that, that you folks are believers, but there may be someone here today who has not turned from their own way of life to trust Jesus for their salvation. And if that's you, you need to pay attention to Him. Earlier in this chapter, in Hebrews 2, verse 3, it says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Only Jesus can free you from the fear of death. Only He can give you eternal life and true glory. Only He can free you from sin's shackles. As we said, He died to bring many sons to glory by bearing their sin penalty in God's eyes. 
And if you turn from your own sinful way and throw yourself on Him for this salvation, He will make you one of these sons of God, an heir of God, a fellow heir with Christ. So if you want to understand more about this, it doesn't matter if you've been calling yourself a Christian for a long time. It doesn't matter. If you, if you need to understand more about this, please uh, talk to me or, or one of the people here before you leave today. I remember a, a uh, story from the 1700s. A story of a very religious man named John Wesley. John Wesley had gone... Well, he, he was a clergyman. He, he was part of the Church of England, and he had gone on missionary work to the colony of Georgia to work with the native peoples there in Georgia. It had not been a very successful venture. But during one of those ocean crossings, he met some people called the Moravians. And John Wesley thought of himself as, as a Christian. But one night, there was a terrible storm, and... People, the, the, the people on the ship feared that they were going to die on the Atlantic Ocean. And John Wesley was terrified at the thought of death. But then he heard the Moravians, poor, simple Christians with a vibrant faith, he heard them singing through the storm. And amidst all the chaos, amidst all the terror of the other people on the ship, these people were calm. They were human, they were, they were feeling all this, but they didn't have a fear of death because they knew Christ. And they had a simple trust and faith in Him. And later that led to Wesley's true conversion because he realized, I've done a lot of Christian things. I've been baptized. I've, I've come up through the church. I thought I believed in Jesus. But I have never had the new birth. I've never been born again of God's Spirit. And I never want to assume that people in churches today, just because they're in churches, even good churches, I never want to assume that they have that freedom from the fear of death and that freedom from sin that Christ brings. So if you're here in that condition, you need to pay attention to Christ. But for those of us who know what it is to know Christ personally, we have a lot of reason to rejoice this morning. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, in love for us as a true human, as a true man, a true son of Adam. Sinless, but one of us. Thank you, Father, for delivering up your Son even to death for us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for becoming a, a helpless infant who had to grow up in this cursed world and had to suffer to the point of death on a cross in our place. Thank you for what you've done for us. And I ask that you will warm our cold hearts toward you. And I pray that you will stir us up to spread the news of what you have done for us in bringing us to glory as sons and daughters of God. Uh, help us to, to not have to work up the, the nerve to spread your gospel or to live the Christian life. Help us to be so overwhelmed by your goodness to us, your grace to us, and the glory of our calling in you 
that we can't help but speak about you and we can't help but live for you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.